Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. The June cover story for Wired Magazine is on a movement in tech that many see as having the potential to rewire not just the internet, but to produce a fundamentally more democratic and equitable society. The story is titled Paradise at the Crypto Arcade Inside the Web3 Revolution, and I had the chance to speak to its author earlier this week. I'm Gilad Edelman. I'm a senior writer at Wired. Gilad, I've got open in front of me a piece that you wrote Last year, uh, the father of Web3 wants you to trust less. And it starts off with what almost sounds like a kind of, I don't know, pharmaceutical advertisement. Do you ever find yourself wondering what is Web3? You're not alone. Gilad, what is Web3? Ask a doctor before deciding if Web3 is right for you. What I was trying to find out when I did that article, I mean, one reason I even published that Q&A was just to force myself to start finding out what this thing is. So Web3 is an idea. It's a concept. It's not a, really a thing that exists. And I started hearing about it last year and it resists summary, but I would summarize it as a new version of the internet made fully decentralized by building it on the blockchain. So can you kind of just give us a little bit of a history of where Web3 came from? Because it certainly didn't uh, arrive in the lexicon last year. But, you know, you profile, uh, for instance, Gavin Wood, and he's been at it for for quite some time. Where does this sort of idea of Web3 originate from? So I like to start all the way back with the creation of Bitcoin, because Bitcoin, uh, everybody's heard of that. That's the original cryptocurrency based on the blockchain. And the core idea behind Bitcoin was that you had to, to create a form of digital money that didn't require any central authority to enforce the rules, you needed to solve a bunch of problems and make sure that people would behave in the right way so that the system could stay afloat. And what's so clever about Bitcoin is how its creator went about solving those problems and thinking about the game theory. What are the incentives of people who use this uh, and who who mine the Bitcoin? Let's make sure that everybody has the has incentive is incentivized to keep the system going. Okay, then a few years after Bitcoin, another important blockchain is created called Ethereum, and Ethereum is similar to Bitcoin, but adds this innovation of being uh, built with a programming language uh, wrapped in it, so that people can build apps that run on the Ethereum blockchain. One of the creators of Ethereum is Gavin Wood, who's a British computer scientist. And not long after they rolled out Ethereum, uh, he wrote a couple of blog posts coining this term Web3, or at the time, Web 3.0. So why why 3? Well, it's a play on Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. In common understanding of internet history, Web 1.0, that's the basically the 90s era. Uh, up through the you know the he- the frothy days of pets.com and you know internet explorer is king and AOL is part of web 1.0 and then things go kind of south or not kind of south big time south when the dot com bubble bursts and then web 2.0 uh, was coined to 
describe and maybe generate some buzz about the next generation of successful internet platforms that were all about, in various ways, user-generated stuff, user-generated content. So uh, instead of just consuming stuff with MySpace and then Facebook, people are posting their own content. You know, Even with Amazon, people are writing reviews, so it's more interactive. That's Web 2.0. Obviously, this is all an oversimplification. So the, the, the enthusiasm about Web 2.0 begins to curdle, right, to, to put it lightly. And Gavin Wood was a little bit ahead of the game on that. See, when he, when he um, started writing about this idea of Web 3, he was reacting actually to the Edward Snowden revelations. So what he had in mind was we need a, a form of the Internet that is resistant to this kind of government control that is so alarming. But th- it didn't really catch on that much at the time. I think the reason that it's caught on a lot more lately is because of this thing we call the tech lash, with people getting really jaded about these dominant Web2 platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, whatever. And so the idea um, that, that Gavin Wood first coined back in 2014 really started to metastasize in 2021, as more and more money was coming into the crypto world and people were getting more and more excited about building this alternative thing using crypto and blockchains. So I want to step back and just talk about one idea that seems uh, crucial to Gavin Wood's concept here and, and arguably to other uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency systems, this idea of trust uh, or trustless systems. Um, how would you define the way trust is being used when we talk about Web3? And what does trustless mean? I puzzled over this for a while because I think for most people, trust is a good thing. And so it sounds odd and kind of perverse to talk about wanting to get rid of trust. But what it means uh, to a Gavin Wood, and, and we should say, you know, Gavin coined the term, but it now has a life of its own. He's not the He's not in charge of what Web3 means. But he was on. But you know, obviously, the idea that he was getting at has a, is kind of a through line here. So when we talk about getting rid of trust, what we're talking about is getting rid of the need to trust. I think that's how I would describe it. So, to a certain way of thinking, the problem with the the way things are now with the the Web 2.0 era that we're still living in is that you have to trust powerful entities not to abuse their power and. If you go back again to the creation of Bitcoin, that was an idea. That that's an idea driving Bitcoin as well. That you have to trust the banks, the financial system. You have to trust central bankers. And so there's definitely this libertarian, major libertarian streak operating here, where we don't want to put our faith in any institutions. So with Web three, part of the idea is what if we could design a system that would just work, and we don't have to trust that anybody will do the right thing because we'll actually design it so that they couldn't do the wrong thing, even if they tried. You bring up liber- the libertarian strand that's in this. And you know, I think to some extent, um, most of my listeners are probably familiar with uh, the notion that there's a kind of libertarian strand generally in the kind of crypto world or in, in the world of blockchains. You know, Recently, I read this article in uh, my former employer, The Economist, on the complicated politics of crypto and Web3 they have a habit of kind of, you know, maybe using a bit of hyperbole, but they talked about the ideas, is crypto Web3 a libertarian dream or a socialist utopia? You know, it does seem like both those kind of veins of thought are running through this. Why do you think people kind of gravitate towards these extremes when it comes to Web3? Why, why is that 
question or that polarity there? The Web3 project, as I write in my article, definitely has a more progressive bent to it than the hardcore Bitcoin cryptocurrency movement. It's always dangerous to generalize because there's just so much going on under this banner of Web3 and definitions are kind of everything. So a lot of people will use Web3 to refer to or to put a kind of positive gloss on behavior that when you peel it back is just money-making schemes. And so there's tons of stuff that people refer to as or put under the banner of Web3 that is, you know, maybe downright scammy, maybe just, you know, rapacious and trying to trying to generate a fortune. What I tried to do in my article is narrow down on what seems like the core idealistic Web3 project. So that's people who take all these claims very seriously and are really trying to bring them about as opposed to kind of people jumping on a bandwagon because there's a, there's a market opportunity. So having stipulated that, and there are a lot of these people out there. I met a lot of them at this big Ethereum conference in Denver, thousands of people. And the hucksters and the people who didn't really know what was going on were, were interspersed in there too. Um, and the, the, the vibe was absolutely very kumbaya and touchy-feely and we're going to come together and change the world. And so it's, your listeners are probably familiar with the concept of horseshoe theory that the, the political spectrum is not aligned, but it actually bends. And as you get far out to the left or far out to the right, they start to come back towards each other. There's a little bit of that going on with Web3, as, as you suggest, you know, is this libertarian, is this super libertarianism or is it super socialism? And both dynamics exist there because on the one hand, you have this distrust of government and institutions and this desire to re-engineer the web so that, and, and perhaps even the world so that it's all partic- bottom-up participatory and decentralized, uh, but, but with, with the goal of solving climate change, solving hunger, you know, d- d- redistributing power and opportunity to everybody. So it's libertarian means to achieve ends that strike most people as sort of lefty. So let's talk a little bit about this journey you went on, because um, this article, Paradise at the Crypto Arcade Inside the Web3 Revolution, it's the cover story on Wired, correct? It is. It's, the, it's on the cover of our June issue, which should be coming out soon. Tell me a little bit about the journey itself. So you, you, you kind of took this intellectual query that you've been on, trying to understand Web3, understand the players, understand the tech, and you, you went on an actual journey. Yeah, the the process of doing this article was was actually kind of interesting because I started, so I pitched it back in the fall, October or November last year. I started having some conversations about this Web3 thing and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Wired should get on top of this and kind of try, you know, I I, I was very grandiose. I think I promised them the definitive <laughs> story about Web3. And then of course, I you know, in my mind, I'd like whip something up by January and it took a little bit longer than that. But So I started just making a zillion phone calls, just talking to anybody, you know, there's so many smart people out there who have things, interesting perspectives on, on the subject and how, where it fits into the history of the internet. So, and, and I talked to web three on, I talked to entrepreneurs and investors and and people who are skeptical of it. And I had just like piles and piles and piles of notes from all these interviews. And I, the article that I was, you know, I I wrote up a draft and it was kind of like a white paper, you know, it was just like sort of. A little bit dry, you know, summarizing a lot of my research, but I hadn't really gotten inside the thing. 
And there was this conference coming up at the end of February. And I thought, oh, well, I should go to the conference. You know, maybe, maybe I'll get one little, maybe I'll get a scene out of it. You know, maybe something will happen and I can, I can throw that in the article for some color. But pretty quickly, once I got to, to East Denver, I realized, oh man, I got to just rip up what I've got and start over because the like concentration of interesting, illuminating stuff that was getting pumped into me was so high. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't just that it was more colorful, although it was, it was that there was something that I had been missing by not really being immersed in this space with the people who are trying to make it uh, exist. Being in that environment just gave me a deeper understanding of what motivated these people and what they were doing that I just couldn't have gotten uh, in, in any other way. You do refer to these individuals as starry-eyed proponents, um, and there are a number of other kind of descriptions of people participating in this in this event, of course, which would make total sense, right? These are people who are invested in trying to bring this this vision forward. I mean, just set the room for us a little bit. Who do you run into at the big Web3 conference in Denver? Mm. Well, there were an estimated 10,000 people there. So ran into ran into a lot of people. So again, you know, there there it was, it was definitely a mix because as much as we're talking about the starry-eyed idealists and the utopians, there were also plenty of people there who, you know, work at DeFi uh companies, so-called decentralized finance, which is basically investment products in the crypto world, um, many of which are probably collapsing as we speak, given what's happening in the crypto market, but they were still riding high back in February. So, you know, there are plenty of people there who just were, you know, networking and shilling their their product and, you know, wearing matching t-shirts for their, for their blockchain, which they're trying to convince you is the best blockchain. So there was all kinds of the bullshit that you see at, um, you know, at conferences in any field. Uh, but there were also these real, you know, a lot of really uh, idealistic people. I mean, when I walked in for the first time and, and, and grabbed a seat at the, in front of the main stage, I, there was a panel going on and it was about using some, something about using blockchain to build public goods. And it was these really earnest people talking about, they worked for something called Giveth, which is a, a charitable giving DAO. Now, I, I, DAO is a word that I'm guessing we'll come back to in this conversation, but for now, we'll just say it's a, a Web3 organization. And this woman was just talking about how, me, how much meaning it's given to her in her life and how like this incredible community and helping people. And I was like, where am I? And one person who was who was not not the star of the conference, but he was definitely one of the stars of the conference, uh, who I spent a, a good bit of time with is this guy Kevin Owaki, who really embodies the revolutionary might be too strong, but kind of you know really earnest mission oriented aspect of this movement, where he's all about building platforms and tools to help people fund you know, projects for the public good in, this, in the Web3 world. Now, what are the, those projects tend to turn out to be like super technical things that don't make sense outside of the context of Web3. It's like, oh, like a, a, a better, it, I, you know what, I, I can't even come up, pull, pull one out of my, uh, out of my butt uh, on the spot. But he's a guy who's been in the tech space for a while. He started and he, he told me he's started many failed uh, startups. He really believes in the power of using blockchains and, and cryptocurrency to make the world a better place. 
and then that was the message that he was delivering at the conference. And, and, and when I was hanging out with him one day, people just kept coming up to him, uh, you know, to talk, they, you know, to, to talk or congratulate him or ask how they can get involved. So uh, he really embodied the, that, that, that spirit. So Awaki's one of these luminaries that you sort of describe as being interested in crypto, being interested in, in blockchain in order to, I think you say, lock human beings into a more cooperative less self-destructive society. You attribute this idea of regenerative crypto economics to him. What, what is regenerative crypto economics and how, that, how is that going to help us stop destroying the world? Yeah, I think, I think we can't avoid getting into the, the weeds of this a little bit because we have to, these concepts are so slippery. Let me, let me try to back up just a little bit and lay out what I think is the basic architecture of Web3. I think there are there are kind of two branches of it. The first one is actually easier to explain, and it's basically what if we could replace all the things that we interact with online now with versions that are based on the blockchain. So, what a simple, an overly simplified way to think about it is, you know, it stinks that uh, Instagram is controlled by Meta and they own all this data on us that we don't, you know, my data gets monetized by them and I'm not really in control of it and I can't take my pictures elsewhere. Okay. What if we sort of built Instagram, a version of Instagram, but it'd be based on the blockchain and I, all my data would be on the blockchain and I would control it with my, you know, cryptographic key. And so the comp, the platform wouldn't own it and everything would be open source because blockchains are public that, that way there's no platform that can screw me over down the road. And if they tried to, if whoever was had, you know, if it, if someone got enough power over over this decentralized Instagram, decentralgram, let's call it, then I could take my data elsewhere. That's like the basic vision for a lot of of what Web three is trying to do, and it immediately raises a question that must be answered. And the question is, okay, you've built a decentralized Instagram. Why would anybody use it? You know, like most people don't care about. Uh, how centralized is, you know, whether the database is on a server owned by a company or it's distributed across a bunch of computers, which is what a blockchain is. Um, how do you get people to use it and make it sustainable? And that's where the next really important part of the Web3 worldview comes in. And that's this tokenomics. So this decentralized Instagram, it's not just going to exist. It's going to issue tokens to everybody who participates, like to users, let's say maybe to advertisers in this new system and uh, to people who lend um, their processing power to run nodes on this blockchain that it's using, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea here is, okay, we're going to incentivize everybody to use it by distributing tokens. And the more people who use our platform, the more valuable those tokens will be. And so people will be incentivized to, you know, not ruin this project and actually contribute to it and make it better um, because they'll have this economic incentive. And also that will give them ownership and people who have the most tokens will actually have more power and they'll get to vote on what happens and it'll all be very participatory. And again, there's no one in the middle calling the shots. So I've just sketched out the typical idea for a Web3 platform. And of course, nothing like this actually exists. There are things in very early stages that may have one element or the other, but there's nothing that exists on any broad scale that is truly decentralized in the sense of actually giving, you know, 
everybody in the community this direct control over what happens uh, at any scale. But that's the hypothesis. So if replacing the internet with a bunch of stuff built on the blockchain and handing out tokens to everybody, if that doesn't seem crazy enough to you, don't worry, there's something even crazier here or something uh, even more radical in its worldview, which is this idea of regenerative crypto economics. This was something that I did really had not wrapped my head around until I went and steeped myself in the brew of the Ethereum Denver crowd. So the idea behind regenerative crypto economics is that you can do more with these crypto incentives that I was just talking about than just build new you know, apps and internet platforms. You can also enable people to come together and solve problems that society has struggled to solve. That's a way to put it at the, at the broadest level. To make this a little bit more concrete, we should introduce a central concept in this worldview, which is something called a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO. And what that means is it's a form of organization. So people coming together to do something that involves how, how to explain this. There's, there's, the, there's the theory of what it is and there's the practice of what it is. So at its most basic level, all a DAO really is, is a, some kind of club or membership organization that conditions membership on owning some crypto token. So I actually made, I, I, I created a DAO while I was in Denver, kind of as a goof, kind of as an experiment. And, you know, we just made a token. So I have friends who know how to do technology stuff is the backstory here. I didn't actually, <laughs> didn't, didn't do this myself. I was the vision guy. Um, you know, so we like, we just created a token out of thin air and distributed it to people. And then we set up a discord server. And if you had showed that you owned that token, you could get into the discord server. So that that's all it is. That That's really the mechanics of it. But the point of it is that the, the, the more elaborate idea behind it is that you can have people who are in the DAO vote on various proposals and they can vote on the blockchain and then you're, you, you will program it through something called smart contracts, but smart contract is just code to, you know, once, once the vote has been decided to execute whatever it is, the thing that people have voted on. Now, what can a DAO execute? really just transferring crypto assets. You know, that's that's kind of the only concrete thing that you can do on a blockchain. You can move stuff around. So in a way, a DAO is like a souped up GoFundMe uh, or Kickstarter project. Or you could say a DAO is a weird, overly complicated uh, Kickstarter or GoFundMe project, right? Why would you go to the trouble of setting up something like this and relying on blockchain and cryptos and stuff uh, when, when there are simpler methods of raising money and distributing it. And Kevin Owaki's answer and, and other people in this space, their answer would be that by doing it on a blockchain, well, there's, there's, there's two answers. One is actually very simple, which is you might, be in, you might really be interested in transferring, uh, in setting up a system that crosses national borders and, you know, wh where you can move things kind of instantaneously without, you know, waiting for wire transfers to go through or something like that. Okay. That gets us back into the whole debate about like the future of the crypto economy. The other reason would be that in theory, you can do all these clever incentive designs so, and this is this is where we get back to all that game theory stuff underlying Web three. The idea is that you can you can build a DAO that has all these 
incentive design sort of coded into it so that you people people that, that that will sort of code people into socially beneficial interactions If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. You're listening to my conversation with Gilad Edelman, senior writer for Wired, where he covers the intersection of tech, politics, and law. Now, back to the conversation. You know, one of the things that you mention in your piece is that, you know, while you're at the the conference, uh, the toilets break, right? The toilets are overflowing and not working correctly. Um, and you see that as a, a sort of a metaphor for Web3 at the moment. I mean, all this stuff sounds kind of interesting, theoretical, very compelling in theory. Does any of it work at present? Yeah, sometimes as a journalist, a metaphor just hits you over the head. And that that was one of those times. <laughs> so I mean, it's, ex- it's extremely early days, it's fair to say. Um, you know, well, not, to, not to discount it, the possibilities, but well, you know, whether it's early or whether it's late is wholly a matter of perspective because blockchain technology is about as old as the iPhone. And no one would say, oh, my iPhone uh, is a great idea, but I can't send texts or take pictures or call people. But it's really got a lot of promise. You know, it's only been 13 years. So give it some time. You know what I mean? So there's really this debate when it comes to blockchain and and crypto world, which is, okay, is it, should we say it's only 13 years old, give it time? Or should we say it's already 13 years old? You know, in the Jewish community, it's already a, it's already an adult. So, I mean, yeah, does, does this stuff work? Um, No, (laughs) a lot of it is works really, really terribly. And that is a problem on its face, but it actually creates a more a deeper problem, which is that the difficulty of using this technology, the difficulty of just doing stuff using blockchain is leading the, the whole space to do the exact thing that it's supposed to not do, which is centralize. Because, you know, back in the 90s, you could, and, and people thought that uh, well, some people thought that everybody would set up their own email server. Anybody can set up their own email server. I don't, don't know anybody who has, I'm sure I know some people who have done that, but <laughs> very few people end up doing that, right? Because it's a lot more convenient to have a Gmail account or back in the day, an AOL account or Yahoo, whatever. Something similar is happening in crypto world where it's whether you're an individual or a company trying to do something, it's just really hard to actually be interacting with the blockchain. And so what they tend, what Web3 apps tend to do is they actually rely on a couple of companies to read and make changes to the blockchain on their behalf. So you're, the whole point of doing stuff on the blockchain is that, is that it's open. Anybody can read it. You're not trusting any central authority. And then what's actually happening in practice, a couple of companies are becoming central authorities that are, you know, a de facto sort of defining what the reality is. And so that is, you know, a really troubling development for a movement that's all about creating this kind of radical openness and decentralization. So we'll see where that goes. Um, I, I want to tease out a couple of other things in this piece that seemed important to me about it. You know, you do spend a lot of time on the kind of concern over centralization versus decentralization. You talk a little bit about the idea of centralization as being uh, really akin to another word, consolidation. And that 
lets you bring in some ideas really around around the law and around you know what some other folks who aren't perhaps in the Web3 world see as uh, potentially a solution to the problems of Web2, uh, which is, of course, you know, policy changes, uh, antitrust regulation or antitrust action, um, other types of, of, of legal interventions that may change the, you know, the way that the web works. You kind of, I don't know, identified a tension with the folks at this conference in particular, just not even seeing that whole other realm of, of potential intervention as, as legitimate or as uh, potentially effective. Is that fair to say? Uh, definitely. I mean, my, my basic view here is that Web3 is a well-intentioned effort to use technology to solve a problem that's actually political. So what I mean by that is centralization is not really the problem. If by centralization, you mean there are you know, people with power in a system or people with control in a system. The problem is that they have too much power, too much control. Why is that? It's not because of the design of the technology, or at least it's not entirely because of the design of the technology. It's what, what, what Web3 people are actually rebelling against or reacting to is a consolidated market, is, is monopoly or, or oligopoly, where you have a small number of super powerful players. Because there are all sorts of, like to take kind of a goofy example, like no one is concerned about how centralized the dry cleaner industry is. Like in a way you go drop off your clothes, you don't have control over how good a job they do, right? I mean, they literally have your suit and your dress shirt and can do whatever they want with it. But no one, I mean, people have their problems with the dry cleaners, but the reason we tolerate that is because there are a lot of dry cleaners, and so, uh, at least if you live in a city, so if one dry cleaner sucks, you just go to a different one because what people actually care about is choice is having options. And web three is trying to you build this kind of Rube Goldberg contraption using blockchains and crypto incentives and tokenomics to create a world in which they think no one will be able to become the next Facebook or Amazon because putting everything on the blockchain just will make it easy for people to switch and and move around and not be locked in. And, you know, maybe that can work. I'm quite skeptical. Uh, meanwhile, we actually know what would work, which is government requiring companies to allow you to take your data and switch to another service or governments requiring there not be one a uh, company that controls 50% of all online commerce and a whole bunch of other stuff besides. So regulation and legislation is sort of this forgotten path within, within this world. It's sort of this forgotten way to achieve the things that they're trying to achieve. And you can understand that to some degree, right? Like government does not have a sterling track record. Congress is unbelievably dysfunctional, to put it very mildly. We're, we're waiting right now to see if they will manage to pass these two pieces of, of you know, pretty ambitious antitrust legislation, which are none, nonetheless are not ambitious enough, probably, if what you want is a really, you know, wide open tech sector, but w w which would do a lot. So these people have kind of gr have, gr you know, these are young people for the most part, too. They've grown up at a time when the government doesn't seem to get its act together a lot. So it's sort of like, 
technology looks like the only tool available. I think that that's an important point. And I, I do have a, a kind of sympathy for people who might look at the situation and say, you know, there seems to be no path forward through Congress. There seems to be no path forward through uh, the courts or, or any other mechanism that might be attached to government. But in a way, you kind of, I don't know, you can also see, to your point about the horseshoe theory, you can also see perhaps in some of the quote unquote starry eyed proponents that you ran across at East Denver, you can see a sort of sympathy with some of the, I don't know, more hardcore accelerationist type thinking that happens in Silicon Valley around blockchain. The idea that we're going to try to take institutions apart and that what we need to do is speed the collapse of those very institutions that, that might, you know, produce legislation. Do you see the any kind of parallels between that thinking or am I wrong to, I don't know, see a kind of general thrust that seems to be uh, in parallel? I would say that the, the people who I interacted with in Web3 did not have such a hostile stance towards government. I think most people there, to the extent we talked about it, were, you know, thought that this, that Web3 projects could actually help strengthen um, democratic self-government. So I, I think, you know, in, there is within crypto land, especially in the, the Bitcoin movement, like a, a hardcore anti-government streak. But the Web3 people that I was interacting with, I don't think you had that as much. It, in, in other words, it wasn't government's bad and we should should get rid of it. It was more like government's kind of useless. So we need to do our own thing. Fair enough. So there's a kind of a, a separation there to some extent. You know, I, I teach, I uh, have students that are always kind of looking for ways to kind of make the world a better place. They're, they're fascinated by technology. And a lot of them have gravitated towards Web3, um, towards crypto. Generally, they see the opportunity. They do believe that the protocol, if we were to shift to a Web3 dynamic, um, that it could potentially do a great deal of good. When you kind of step back from all of this and when you got back from the conference and I don't know if you're still running the DAO or not. You you know uh, either put down the reins well, of the de- DAO. It's decentralized. <laughs> but so, you're not running you know, it. Far be it from me to <laughs> right. If you were still involved in it somehow in some uh, generative way, do you are you left with a sense of optimism about it all? Where do you kind of net out after having gone on this journey? I would say the optimistic part is that there's a lot of people who would just say Web three is completely a scam. Everything in it's a scam and I can tell you there are a lot of really smart, really, what, what's the word? Good people working on this stuff. So I, I at least walked away thinking that there were a lot of people who are really well-intentioned. Now, you all, you know what we say about good intentions. So that doesn't really guarantee a good outcome. So am I, what, am I optimistic about the project itself? It comes back to what we were talking about with, with the, the missing role of policy. I would feel a lot better about the prospects for this if I saw more awareness that it can't happen without a role for government. You know, I t- there's, there's a guy named Jeremy Johnson who works at the Filecoin Foundation, which is a, a, a prominent blockchain-based organization, really smart guy. And a point that he made to me is that everybody talks about Web3 is the blockchain, Web3 blockchain. And, and, and what he said was, it's actually not all about the blockchain. That the, the, the better way to think of it is, 
it's it's a, a variety of technological approaches that have the same goal of decentralization and you know empowering individuals. Uh, for for example, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with the cryptography element without having to put stuff on a blockchain. So when you widen the aperture there, there that, then I start to get a little bit more excited. I think I think we actually are going to see people come up with really cool things, but using cryptography, you know, like, I don't think we're going to be using passwords in a few years or five years, uh, not nearly as much as we are now. That'll be really cool. Is that a wholesale rewiring of, of the internet? No. But when, when I was talking with Jeremy uh, and I was kind of throwing, I, I, I was running my, my theory about the role of regulation by him and we weren't, you know, quite seeing eye to eye, but a point that I, that I walked away with was, you know, if these technologies uh, are really so good, I, I should attribute this to Jeremy. I said, I said, what do you think about, you know, what, what if government, what if the government just passed laws that sort of force companies to behave the way we want? And he, and he said, I think if the government passed laws like that, everyone would adopt these technologies. That is a, a deep point because that is actually how innovation has often worked in the past, where people think about regulation as being in opposition to innovation, but that is actually not always the case. A lot of the time, what, what spurs innovation is, is government imposing requirements that business has to meet. You know, look at Tesla, right? Would Tesla be as successful as it is uh, without the intervention of government? Obviously not. Would we all have these, um, remember how bad LED light bulbs used to be? They used to be awful, but now they're awesome, right? The industry figured out how to make LED light bulbs good because the government said you can't keep using those energy inefficient incandescent bulbs. So, I mean, these are kind of goofy examples, but the point is you could imagine a future where the right kinds of regulations, if these technologies are really worth their salt, uh, the right kind of regulations could actually spur their adoption. But until it seems a, a little bit tragic that this movement is not putting any of their considerable muscle and energy and financial resources into that aspect of the fight. It seems like the only engagement that that world has with government is really through the crypto side of things. And, you know, we know that lobbyists are out there writing laws in all kinds of state houses and pumping lots of money into DC, but you don't get the sense that the Web3 folks are leading that charge at all. Yeah, it, it seems like the, the, the lobbying effort is more focused on preventing the kind of regulations that they don't want. You know, there's a lot of, you know, fear in crypto world that the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to start cracking down. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's concern that overly broad regulations could nip some of this innovation in the bud. Um, so there's sort of a net that, that traditional tech world negative approach to regulation, which is like, let's, let's, fend off the stuff we don't like. And there, I have not seen much aware, much uh, attention paid to what are the kinds of things that could actually give, give us a boost. In some ways, that reminds me a bit of, I mean, really just the history of the web. I mean, if you think back to uh, the early years of, of the web, there was that same kind of mentality. Let's, let's make sure we permit as much innovation as possible. And, you know, arguably that lack of government setting constraints at the outset is what's led us to the place where so many would look at the situation and say it needs to be reformed or it needs to be you know regulated it's it's created the kind of con consolidation and the results of that consolidation go back to that that set of choices yeah i mean a, a maybe a simple way to put it is that 
markets tend to consolidate. If the government is not doing its job as the the referee and, you know, just policing to make sure there's a fair competitive market, markets over time just tend to get dominated. And uh, the internet arose at a time where the, the, in the American context, where uh, competition policy was like practically dead, where the government had just kind of gotten out of the business of enforcement with the notable exception of the Microsoft case. So, you know, the, because the internet is so young, there's not even a history of like you, if you want to go back in history, you can find times when the steel industry, you know, when the government used antitrust to break up the steel industry or the supermarkets or the railroads or almost any business you can name, actually, the internet's so young uh, that there is no, there is no real history of that again, other than the Microsoft case. And so we haven't, we don't really have a template for what that would look like. Clearly, since you published this, or probably went to bed with it at least, knowing that you know Conde has a some fact checking process, and you mm-hmm. must, it must there must have been you must have turned in final copy a while ago. We have Correct. seen this this meltdown right in the world of crypto. Have you heard from any of your sources about how they've been potentially affected by that? Has it changed the mood? I mean, you really you know you came across a lot of people who were trying to reconnect with the joy of tech through Web3. Is that parade been rained on a bit? It's a great question. I, the sentiment that I've seen from Web3 world is mainly there have been downturns before, you know, we'll, we'll ride this out. So I haven't seen anybody waving the white flag yet. Although on the other hand, you probably wouldn't notice that, you know, many people are probably just sort of backing backing out quietly. I wouldn't be surprised if that was happening. I think the big question here is, look, the market is down. It's not just crypto that's tanking. There's some crazier stuff happening in the crypto markets than in the market overall, but to a large degree, the crypto markets are just kind of tracking the NASDAQ. They're kind of like a tech stock. So it really remains to be seen whether the mini meltdown that's happening in the crypto markets is the beginning of the end, or will crypto come back if and when, well, let's say when the market overall comes back. So my suspicion is that it's the latter. I don't think the crypto thing is is actually dead yet, but we'll see. You know, it, it confidence works in strange ways. And I do think that there is so much money invested in things that have no value beyond the willingness of somebody else to pay more for it later that you could imagine a tipping point where where the whole thing really collapses. And if that happens, what are the implications for the Web3 project? That'll be interesting to see because even though the Web3 project is much more ideals-driven and mission-driven than just like trying to get rich uh, by picking crypto stocks, it does depend on the money that's in this sphere to fund projects and to keep you know programmers employed. So it will it will be a big challenge for Web3 if a lot of the money evaporates from crypto world. Well, I suppose leaving an open question is a good place for a journalist to stop uh, in this <laughs> particular conversation. I assume you'll continue to cover these things and perhaps we can have you back on to talk about it again. Cool. Sounds great. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. 
You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.